When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A trailblazing general loses his heroic final battle. The lead starts right now. He left his indelible mark on the U.S. military and public service. General Colin Powell dies from a battle with cancer and COVID. A special look at his legacy ahead. Whether you're buying a car, putting gas in the tank, or groceries in the trunk, life is currently crazy expensive as so much stuff is just sitting offshore. One of the main people trying to fix the crisis is here to explain to us what's the holdup. Plus... An armed gang in Haiti kidnaps a group of American missionaries, including five children. We'll have a live update from Port-au-Prince as the FBI arrives. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with our national lead today, the death of an American icon and hero and the first-generation son of Jamaican immigrants, General Colin Powell, who served as the very first black Secretary of State and the very first black Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff died today from COVID complications. Powell had been fully vaccinated against COVID, but his immune system was vulnerable. A source tells CNN that Powell was being treated for Parkinson's disease as well as for multiple myeloma, which is a type of blood cancer. President Biden today calling Powell a dear friend and a patriot of unmatched honor and dignity as reaction poured in from around the globe. I had the honor of interviewing General Powell several times, including last June, in the wake of the George Floyd protests, when Powell spoke candidly about the state of the nation, the state of the Republican Party, and his support for then-candidate Joe Biden. Do you think that the country is in something of a turning point? We are in turning points. I mean, the Republican Party, the president, thought they were sort of immune. They can go say anything they wanted. And even more troubling, the Congress would just sit there and not in any way resist what the president's doing. And the one word I have to use with respect to what he's been doing for the last several years is a word I would never have used before. I never would have used with any of the four presidents I've worked for. He lies. He lies about things. And he gets away with it because people would not hold him accountable. And so while we're watching him, we need to watch our Congress. I watched the senators heading into the chamber the other day after all this broke with a reporter saying, what do you have to say? What do you have to say? They had nothing to say. They would not react. And so we're not a country of just a president. We have a Congress. We have a Supreme Court. But most of all, we have the people of the United States, the ones who vote, the ones who vote them in and the ones who vote them out. I couldn't vote for him in 96, and I certainly cannot in any way support President Trump this year. So, uh, yeah, I know you didn't vote for him in 2016. I I assume based on the fact that you approved uh, Joe Biden when uh, Senator, then-Senator Obama picked him to be his running mate in 2008, I, I assume you're going to be voting for Joe Biden? I'm very close to Joe Biden on a social matter and on a political matter. I've worked with him for 35, 40 years, and he is now the candidate, and I will be voting for him. As General Powell said, his life of service stretched over several decades in presidential administrations from both parties and from the battlefields of Vietnam 
to the hallowed halls of the State Department. CNN's Alex Marquardt starts us off. The news of Colin Powell's death prompted an outpouring of grief that reflects the profound admiration of a statesman unique in so many ways. Colin Powell dedicated his extraordinary life to public service because he never stopped believing in America. And we believe in America in no small part because it helped produce someone like Colin Powell. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Tributes poured in from presidents, prime ministers, and countless others. President Joe Biden said that Powell, quote, embodied the highest ideals of both warrior and diplomat. He was committed to our nation's strength and security above all. Powell, Biden said, will be remembered as one of our great Americans. Obviously a heartbreaking tragedy tragedy for the country and one the president is feeling personally. From Powell's heritage as the son of immigrants, to his storied military career before becoming a public servant who transcended party affiliation, the former four-star general and secretary of state paved the way for so many, like Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. The world lost one of the greatest leaders that we have ever witnessed. Um, Alma lost a great husband, and the family lost a tremendous father. And I lost uh, a tremendous personal friend and mentor. At 84 years old, Powell was among the most vulnerable to the pandemic ravaging the planet. He had been vaccinated, but he was also suffering from Parkinson's disease and being treated for multiple myeloma, a cancer of the blood's plasma cells. Both wreaked havoc on Powell's immune system, making him much more susceptible to COVID-19. Multiple myeloma uh, is a disease that itself suppresses the immune system. But it's also important to understand that the treatment for multiple myeloma, which patients often take every day, uh, itself uh, can suppress uh, the immune system. So uh, General Powell uh, represented our most vulnerable population in this country. He was over the age of 80. He had cancer and the treatment for his cancer made him vulnerable. The vaccines are less effective with cancer patients generally, and a study in July found that just 45 percent of multiple myeloma patients developed an adequate COVID-19 response when vaccinated, a reason why the FDA and CDC have approved booster shots for the immunocompromised. Powell had kept his cancer quiet. One of his last public appearances was in late September for the school named after him at the City College of New York. Speaking with his daughter, Linda, he grew emotional talking about the students. I said, OK, each of you tell me where you're from, where your parents are from and what's your future. Each one of them, 12, I think, each one of them did that. And. Yeah. They reminded you of yourself. The reason I'm crying is I looked at them. And they were me. Mm-hmm. And they came from an immigrant background like me. And they came from some borough in the Bronx. And they were smiling. They were happy. And Jake, that tender moment between General Powell and his daughter Linda was under three weeks ago on September 30th. And we have just heard that President Joe Biden has spoken about General Powell's passing. Let's take a quick listen to what he had to say. Well, I became friends with Colin Powell, who we just lost. Think of where Colin Powell is, not only a dear friend and a patriot, one of our great military leaders and a man of overwhelming decency. This is a guy born son of immigrants, 
in New York City, raised in Harlem in the South Bronx, graduated from City College in New York. And he rose to the highest ranks, not only in the military, but also in, in areas of foreign policy and statecraft. This is a guy, and we talk about it, who had teachers who looked at this African-American kid and said, you can do anything. Powell's longtime chief of staff tells CNN that Powell was vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine, that he got his second dose back in early February and was due to get his booster shot this past week, but couldn't receive it, Jake, because he fell ill. All right, Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel and CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So, so Jamie, uh, General Powell's longtime chief of staff, Peggy Safrino, tells you that Powell also had Parkinson's disease. Tell us more about that. Right. We, we don't know how long he'd been suffering from it. He'd been very private about this, but we know that he'd been suffering from Parkinson's. He had been suffering from multiple myeloma. But very important, she said to me, she wanted everyone to know that he was vaccinated very early on. January, his second vaccine was in February. He was getting ready to have his booster. But as we've been discussing, um, just having those illnesses, and Sanjay will speak to this much better than, than I can, makes the vaccine less effective. He was therefore more vulnerable so to my mind, it's another reason why everyone needs to get vaccinated. Right. And then, Sanjay, isn't that part of the point that one of the reasons that people like me and you get vaccinated in addition to protecting ourselves, one of the reasons we do that and also wear masks is to protect people like General Powell, who had a compromised immune system. He had multiple myeloma. He survived prostate cancer, Parkinson's. He was right. 84 years old. Um, this, if anything, I think reaffirms the need for people to get vaccinated to protect people like General Powell. Right. I mean, you know, when we talk about herd immunity, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. But, you know, just sort of philosophically, it means enough people get vaccinated that you protect uh, the most vulnerable among us, people who can't get vaccinated or people who are very vulnerable because of age, because of, as you're talking about, his multiple myeloma, which is a particularly difficult cancer when it comes to immunity, um, we, we know that this is a cancer of the very cells that produce the antibodies, right? So the, it's the plasma cells, and they're the ones that produce the antibodies. And we also know, we can put it up, that about 45% of people who get vaccinated only have about an adequate, have an adequate response to the vaccine. 22% have a partial response, and 33% have no response. So we don't know where he sort of fell in there, but that was also, you know, that, that's why it's been suggested that people who have weakened immune systems, as he would have, uh, get that booster shot. But that's, that's exactly the point. And he got this virus from somebody, somewhere, right? And that's not to, to point fingers, more to say that that's the point of herd immunity. If enough people get vaccinated, you bring down the viral spread, it protects people, like, like General Powell. Yeah, and Jamie, let's talk about his legacy and, and, and the man that we all uh, miss uh, today, people who had the honor to, to have known him or interviewed him. You've been talking to people who were close to him. What are they telling you? So I, I think we talk a lot about people being larger than life. He really was. And he always had a smile. He wore his great success very lightly. He, would, if, he wouldn't say, I'm from New York. He would say, I'm from the Bronx. If someone <laughs> said, you know, where'd you go to college? I didn't go to West Point. He went to City University. 
uh, and his grades were not so great. And he made a point of always telling people uh, about that. Uh, He also liked to say he spoke Yiddish, which uh, growing up in New York, and if you had a Volvo that needed work done on it, he was your man. I, I think he fixed more than 35 Volvos for people. And it just speaks to the kind of person he was. He once said, let's everyone be kind to each other. So in addition to this extraordinary career, you just had quite a man there. Yeah, one of the things that he got such a kick out of was um, that he had come in third in the presidential race in 2016 (laughs) because there are some errant electors uh, who had voted for him. And so he had framed a a copy uh, of that uh, because he thought it was uh, so amusing that somebody had had written him in. Sanjay, um, so obviously uh, General Powell's death is not uh, any evidence of anything negative about the vaccines. But as you, t- you talked about how m- multiple myeloma, the, the blood cancer he suffered from, how could, that could compromise his immune system. Obviously, his age, 84, uh, that makes him more yeah. vulnerable. But um, what about the fact that he was a survivor of prostate cancer and the fact that he was uh, somebody fighting uh, Parkinson's disease? Could, would, would either of those compromise his immune system? I think there's there's less data on that. You know, with Parkinson's, it may may uh, sort of uh, make recovery difficult if someone has COVID, but it's not as clear cut of an impact on the immune system. Someone who's being treated for prostate cancer, uh, because the treatments themselves, uh, part of the way these treatments work is they suppress your immune system. But I don't know that he was a- he was actively being treated for that. So I think it's less less sort of clear there. But in terms of the fact that he had been vaccinated, I just I, t- to reiterate your point, Jake. You know the, these breakthrough infections, and we, we talk a lot about this. But you know there's some 187 million people roughly that have been uh, vaccinated in the United States. We pulled some of these numbers because I just want to show this. I think sometimes the data makes the point that of those 187 million, there have been about 7,200 breakthrough infections that resulted in death. 7,178, as you see there. 85% of those are among people uh, who are older than 65. And by the way, not everyone who dies after being vaccinated, obviously, even among these breakthrough infections, die COVID-related deaths. But this next graph sort of makes this point, Jake, that we've, we've made before, that if you look overall at the death rate among the vaccinated versus unvaccinated, I mean, just look at that. That, that. that is the point. I mean, you know, people keep saying, hey, well, you can still get it. What difference does it make? That graph is the difference that it makes. You're far less likely to survive if you have been vaccinated. It's as simple as that. Jamie, Sanjay, thanks so much. Coming up, a holdup at U.S. ports costing Americans more by the minute, it seems. One of the main people trying to fix this logjam joins us with an update. Also, he's the 25-year-old black man who was chased down and shot to death while jogging. Today, the trial begins for the three white men accused of Ahmed Arbery's murder. Stay with us. And our politics lead tensions boiling over inside the Democratic Party with yet another self-imposed deadline yet less than two weeks away. We have frankly lost track of how many of these self-imposed deadlines the Democrats have blown through. Sources tell CNN that President Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have decided it is time to wrap up negotiations on what exactly will be included in the Build Back Better Act, which is meant to expand social safety net programs such as child care and elder care. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, Now President Biden is hosting the two groups of Democrats at the White House again as the party infighting becomes more public and seemingly more personal. 
President Biden's agenda stuck in congressional limbo. The president is certainly feeling an urgency to move things forward, to get things done. Democrats are in a standoff over how to scale back the president's ambitious social safety net and climate change proposal. He's going to continue to work with Democratic leadership about having the kinds of meetings and engagements that will help move this across the finish line. Sources tell CNN that Biden and House Speaker Pelosi believe it's time to wrap up negotiations ahead of an end-of-the-month deadline to pass this bill and the infrastructure plan. Tomorrow, he will host two different meetings with House members here at the White House, one with moderates and one with progressive members. Currently, Biden's plan would make child care more affordable, provide universal pre-K, expand paid family leave and address the climate crisis. But as moderate senators have drawn red lines on some of those provisions, other Democrats aren't hiding their frustration. But what I do think is simply unfair is that two members of the Senate think that they have a right to obstruct what the overwhelming majority of the American people want, what the president wants. Senator Bernie Sanders is attempting to increase pressure on Senator Joe Manchin, publishing an op-ed in Manchin's West Virginia hometown paper highlighting his opposition. He says he's hold, you're holding up the Biden agenda. No, no, there's 52 senators that don't agree. Okay, and there's two that want to work something out if possible. Manchin has drawn several lines in the sand from the price tag to the climate provisions to even pushing a work requirement and income cap on the child tax credit. We're talking about targeting and focusing the president's proposals in some areas on people who need help the most. Manchin has also told the White House he strongly opposes the clean electricity program, an essential part of Biden's plan to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. We've got to do something about it. I don't believe that Joe Manchin doesn't know we have to do something. President Biden only offering this response when asked if Manchin and Sanders can ever see eye to eye to get his agenda across the finish line. And Jake, of course, as the president is trying to secure a deal on that uh, that proposal, this latest proposal that they are now arguing over, he also has dealing with these supply chain gridlock issues that we detailed, of course, last week. Those are issues that his transportation secretary predicts are going to last well into next year, though Secretary Buttigieg did argue that if they get that hard infrastructure bill passed, that it will help alleviate some of those issues. Of course, Jake, getting that bill passed is contingent, progressives say, on getting an agreement on this social safety net and climate change package that Democrats are still very much divided over. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, thanks so much. The massive supply chain backlog is partially to blame for the higher prices we're all seeing on items from groceries to gasoline to new cars. And one of the easiest ways to visualize this traffic jam is the scene at the Port of Los Angeles, the busiest cargo port in North America, where hundreds of thousands of shipping containers are waiting to be unloaded and dozens of ships are stuck just offshore with cargo on board. Here to discuss is Gene Soroka, the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles. Gene, thanks so much for joining us. It's been five days now since President Biden announced that your port would move to 24 hours a day, seven days a week service. Uh, have you seen any of the backups start to alleviate? 
Yeah, good afternoon, Jake. And yes, we have. Uh, last week when I reported to the senior administration officials as well as the president, we had 25% of all cargo on our docks sitting here for 13 days or longer. That's been just about cut in half over the last week. We've also seen impressive moves on our rail product where we've cut back the amount of rail containers that have been sitting here for long periods of time by about half over the last month. So is it true that there are currently about 250,000 shipping containers sitting at the port waiting to be unloaded? And whatever the number is, how does that compare to a normal day? We've got about two weeks worth of work sitting at anchor right now, Jake. That's about 200,000 20-foot equivalent units or containers as we call them. And really the, the question right now is how do we segment this cargo? There's product that needs to get out there in super fast speed. Think about the toys, the other Christmas products, and parts and components for factories. Then there's other product that's been ordered just in case. And we need to move that away so we can really focus on the product that needs to get to market. What kinds of items uh, are specifically are the highest priority uh, that are on these ships and in these containers that are still stuck uh, in, in the port? Mostly our retail products, Jake, and that would be anything from toys to bicycles, footwear, clothing, all the things that we would buy for family and friends during the year-end holiday season. At the same time, about 20% of our import lift are those parts that go to factories. The, the big three automotive folks in, uh, in Michigan, as well as their tiered suppliers throughout the Midwest, and others who really need these components to get there so they can build their final products. The White House proposed this as a 90-day plan the idea of the Port of Los Angeles uh, working 24-7, 90-day plan. Is that going to be enough time uh, to fix these bottlenecks? Well, we should be able to make good progress, but this is going to take some time. Most folks are telling me right now that we'll see strength in the import market through an early Lunar New Year in February of 2022. And then the major retailers have told me directly the second quarter of next year is going to be focused on replenishing this inventory. We've been buying more than ever as American consumers, and the retailers have really tried their level best just to simply keep up with demand, much less build in stock. And in fact, our inventory sales ratio as a nation is the lowest it's been since pre-recession days. So do you think you need to keep up this 24-7 plan until next summer? Yes, we're going to have to work all out. And realistically, right now, through our data mining, we've seen that 30 percent of our truck appointments go unused every day, whether it be from the 8 to 5 shift during the day or the 6 p.m. shift at nighttime. We've got to take advantage of that latent capacity and squeeze every minute and every hour of efficiency out of the port that we can so a lot of Americans might have been surprised to find out that the biggest port in North America wasn't already a 24-7 operation. Why wasn't it? Was there just not the demand at the time? There's an entire orchestra of players that has to get on the same schedule. Our truckers are federally mandated to drive no more than 11 hours of day. And the American Trucking Association has said we're short 30,000 truckers right now across the country. Our warehouses, of which we boast 2 billion square feet from the shores of the Pacific out to the desert region of Southern California, typically only work during the day. So part of what the president did last week was to telegraph to our largely private sector supply chain partners, you need to work more hours. All right, Gene Soroka, thank you so much. Please come back and keep us uh, abreast of what's going on. And if you need us to push on our end, the public officials, let us know.
16 Americans and a Canadian kidnapped in Haiti and kids are among the captives. What we know about their condition and what's being done to free them, that's next. In our world lead, the FBI is now involved in trying to find 17 missionaries, including five children, who were kidnapped by a notorious Haitian gang over the weekend. The 16 Americans and one Canadian are part of the Ohio-based Christian Aid Ministries. The faith organization says the missionaries and children were kidnapped after visiting an orphanage just outside Port-au-Prince on Saturday. Haiti's security forces claim a well-known local gang is responsible. There are reports that some of the missionaries were able to send a group text just as the attack was happening. He said, pray for us. We're being harassed. We're being uh, kidnapped right now. There's so many of us. CNN's Matt Rivers is in Port-au-Prince and filed this report moments ago near the scene of the kidnapping. Take a look. So several miles just down that road right there is where our source in Haiti's security forces tells us that this kidnapping was carried out. Uh, And in more normal times, we would simply get in our cars, drive several miles down the road, and go see the exact spot where this happened. But basically, we're following the advice right now of our Haitian producer and of our security team who say we shouldn't go any further than this because it's too dangerous. Because also, further down that road, is the suburb of Kuala Bouquet. It's a big area that is, according to our source in Haiti security forces, completely controlled by the gang 400 Mawozo. That is the gang that our source in the security forces says is responsible for carrying out this kidnapping. And that gang and others are responsible for terrorizing ordinary Haitians. Remember, it's ordinary Haitians, Haitian citizens, that make up the vast number of kidnapping victims. It's not foreign nationals. And it's also gang violence that has made life so difficult in the capital city of Port-au-Prince and its surrounding areas. And that's why there's a form of protest going on today in this area. Normally, this street would be packed with traffic, uh, with a lot of life, and it's a lot calmer than it normally is because many people have chosen to stay home today. Schools are closed, businesses, many of them are closed. Different types of transportation methods here in the city have stopped. It is a form of protest from ordinary Haitians who are basically saying enough that these levels of violence, the level of threats from these kidnappings, they're simply too high, they're unsustainable to live a peaceful life. They're demanding action from their government, and this protest is how they're making their voices heard, at least today. If the government is going to change this situation, it's going to be very difficult because of the level of control exercised by gangs like the one that controls that area behind me and also other gangs in this area. All right, let's bring in Matt live from Haiti's capital now. And Matt, do, do police have any leads on where these missionaries might be? Well, we know, according to our, our own reporting, Jake, uh, that both the State Department and the FBI, they say they don't know uh, where these, where the exact location is in terms of where uh, these hostages are at this point. I do know here uh, within local security forces, there is a sense uh, that these kidnappees, these uh, missionaries, they are in that neighborhood that we were just in front of. I mean, that makes sense when you think about it. That is the suburb controlled by the gang and that is accused of carrying this out. But in terms of specific locations, Jake, I think that remains uh, very much elusive. And we do know that this gang does move its victims around to make them harder to pin down. All right, Matt Rivers live from Port-au-Prince. Stay safe and thank you. It's a matter of safety clashing with a matter of safety. What could happen if hundreds of police officers refuse to get required COVID vaccines? Stay with us. 
In our health lead, as of today, two-thirds of eligible Americans are fully vaccinated. It is an incredible feat. More than 189 million people in the U.S. deciding to protect themselves and their families and their communities, causing cases and hospitalizations and deaths to plummet. Lowest numbers for two of those factors in more than two months. But for those 65 million unvaccinated holdouts, some may be just days away from being fired from their jobs. CNN's Alexander Field looks into how mandates are pitting some police officers against their own city. A showdown between cities and powerful police unions is playing out from coast to coast over vaccine mandates. This notion that individual officers get to be insubordinate as they as they choose and pick and choose, we're not having that. Chicago's police department now telling officers they must get special permission for time off as a vaccine mandate takes effect and warning officers who refuse to share their vaccine status they could be fired. In Baltimore, the police union telling officers not to reveal their vaccine status, citing a lack of communication between city officials and the bargaining unit, according to the Baltimore Sun. This is not a good thing to mix up a public health crisis and a vaccine that can save lives amongst things like bargaining power. This is the wrong hill to die on. The looming mandates triggered concerns over staffing shortages. Seattle's public schools canceled about 140 bus routes, fearing too few vaccinated drivers. On Friday, just 82 percent of the city's police department was in compliance with the vaccine policy. That number now jumping to 98 percent. Massachusetts moved preemptively to offset possible staffing shortages among state troopers by calling up its National Guard to assist in prisons if needed and to administer COVID tests to kids in schools. As of today, deadline day, the governor's office says 90 percent of state police have submitted their vaccine records. We know now the statistics. More police officers die of COVID than they do in other causes of death. So uh, it doesn't make any sense. The rush of mandates now targeting some of these 66 million Americans choosing not to get the shot just as the country crosses a vaccination milestone. Two-thirds of all eligible Americans are now fully vaccinated. COVID-related deaths are trending down. Cases and hospitalizations falling to nearly three-month lows. But health officials are still expressing concerns over the danger of failing to vaccinate more people. There's always the danger that there'll be enough circulating virus that you can have a stalling of the diminishing of the number of cases. And when that happens, there's the danger of resurgence. And, Jake, we are now learning that more than a third of Chicago's police officers have defied the city's mandate, failing to report their vaccination status. Now, before there are any firings, the city will take a series of steps, including the possibility of no pay status for those 4,500 officers. For those who did report their vaccine status, we should say that the majority are vaccinated. Those who aren't will have to submit to twice-weekly testing. Hmm. Alexander Field, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, uh, Ahmad Arbery's mother reacts to the jury selection and the trial of the three white men accused of chasing down and murdering her son. Plus, breaking details right now about how former President Trump is trying to keep some of his records secret. Right after this. Beautiful ideas that remain in the dark. But with our new multi cloud experience, 
you have the flexibility you need to unveil them to the world. Opportunities are all about timing. So now that Medicare annual enrollment is here, it's time to take advantage of a plan that gives you more for your Medicare dollar. An AARP Medicare Advantage plan from United Healthcare. This opportunity to enroll only comes once a year. So give United Healthcare a call today. Take advantage of $0 copays for primary care doctor visits, even virtual visits, and $0 copays and deductibles on Tier 1 prescriptions at the pharmacy or with home delivery, and $0 copays on mail order Tier 2 prescriptions. Now's the time to get more savings. Our plan members saved an average of over $9,000 on prescriptions last year. With this plan, get $0 copays on preventive dental care, free yearly eye exams, free designer frames, and prescription lenses, all for a low or $0 monthly premium. Call United Healthcare today. Find out why we're America's number one Medicare Advantage plan provider. Now's the perfect time to take your shot and join a plan with Medicare Advantage's largest provider network. And only United Healthcare offers Renew Active with a free gym membership and access to Medicare Advantage's largest gym network. Annual enrollment ends December 7th, so don't miss your chance. Call United Healthcare now. Learn about our wide choice of plans, including PPO options, that lets you see any doctor who accepts Medicare without a referral. Take advantage of more benefits, more ways to save, and more support. Catching a good opportunity is all about timing. So call United Healthcare today. With over 40 years of experience, you can lean on us when you need it most. We'll help you easily enroll before the moment slips away. AARP Medicare Advantage from United Healthcare. Take advantage now. This is our collective history. Together, it's ours to protect. For new histories to be written. New records shattered. New legacies forged. CrowdStrike. We stop breaches. When we started our business, we were paying like an arm and a leg for the postage. I remember setting up ShipStation, I think it was just like one or two clicks. Everything was up and running. I was printing out labels and saving money. ShipStation saves us so much time. It makes it really easy and seamless. Pick an order, print everything you need, slap the label onto the box and it's ready to go. Our cost for shipping, like we're cut in half, just like that. ShipStation, the number one choice of online sellers. Go to ShipStation.com try and get two months free. Meet Glowforge, the 3D laser printer. Create with wood, fabric, cardboard, whatever's laying around the house. This is Glowforge, and it can be yours. See more at glowforge.com. Managing your money can be hard. 
But what if there was a secret financial control center that helped you organize your spending, manage unwanted subscriptions, and lower your bills? Download Truebill, your all-in-one finance app. This is Life with Lisa Ling, Sundays at 10 on CNN. Breaking news, former President Donald Trump has just filed a lawsuit in relation to the deadly Capitol insurrection. Trump is trying to keep records from his presidency secret, records that might detail what he and key allies were doing before and during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live for us in Capitol Hill. Ryan, whom exactly is former President Trump suing? So, Jake, uh, in this filing that just uh, crossed in the D.C. Circuit Court, the the former president has filed a lawsuit against the January 6th committee and the National Archives in an effort to to keep secret a whole tranche of documents that the committee is looking for in regards to their investigation as to what happened on January 6th and what potential role the former president may have played. And as we are are going through these documents, Caitlin Polance, one of our justice reporters, uh, and others going through this information, it, it seems as though the Trump legal argument is centered around three different claims. The first claim being uh, that the committee has not demonstrated a specific legislative purpose uh, for uh, getting this information. And that is part of the responsibility of a congressional committee. They do have to have a legislative aim when asking for information. And uh, the former president's uh, lawyers arguing that there's just not enough in this regard. He's also uh, suing on behalf of the Presidential Records Act, saying uh, that there, this violates the separation of powers between the executive uh, and legislative branches, even when it pertains to a former president. That, of course, uh, will be an open legal question. You have legal experts on both sides, uh, you know, arguing as to whether or not that claim is valid. And then the third thing that the Trump lawyers are saying is that they simply just do not have enough time uh, to go through these records to see exactly what the committee is looking for, uh, and therefore the process should be delayed. Uh, The committee's yet to respond to this lawsuit. Uh, Jake, it obviously doesn't come as a surprise. Uh, The president has been signaling both uh, privately and publicly that he was going to do everything he could to prevent this information from getting into the hands of the select committee. And he's also even taken it a step further by reaching out to many of his former associates uh, and telling them not to cooperate with the committee for that exact reason. So uh, even if the committee ends up being successful uh, in this legal effort, if they're able to stop this from happening, it still uh, creates an obstacle for them, right? Because it's going to delay the process. And that's something they've been concerned about from the beginning. So Jake, the big news here, uh, the former president filing a lawsuit to try and prevent that information from coming for, for to come uh, to the January 6th Select Committee. Jake. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Now turning to our national lead, the start of the trial in the murder of an innocent man whose death shocked the country. Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man, chased down and shot while jogging in Georgia last year. Initially, no arrests were made, you might recall. That is, until someone leaked cell phone video to the news media showing the horrifying incident. The video recorded by one of the alleged perpetrators. The images of the murder set off nationwide protests and calls for racial justice and finally led to arrests while also exposing the ugly suspicion that without that leak, nothing would have been done. Today, jury selection began in Georgia for the trial of these three men charged with Arbery's murder. And CNN's Martin Savitz joins us from Atlanta. Martin, how long is the jury selection process expected to take? Jake, the early estimate is about two weeks to maybe two and a half weeks. It's complicated by a number of factors. Number one, COVID and the safety precautions that are being taken. 
There are about 1,000 jury notices that were sent out. The first 600 or so jurors were expected to show up today. They didn't go right to the courthouse. They went to a gymnasium. There they could spread out, and when they're needed, they will be taken in groups of 20 over to the courthouse. So that's slow. On top of that, you've got three defendants going on trial at the same time. Each of those defendants has two attorneys, so six defense attorneys, plus the prosecution, plus the judge, all weighing in on the decisions to make up that jury. Uh, Wanda Cooper-Jones is Ahmad Arbery's mother. She was speaking about the jury, but first she talks about the video. I think without that um, video, we wouldn't have an arrest, but I thank God that the, uh, the video came and we got arrest, and, and now we, we're here to select the jury to, to finally get justice for Ahmad. I have my concerns, being that the jurors will be picked from this community. Um, there has been lots of miscommunications in the, in the beginning of what happened on that day, but I'm hopefully that we'll get the right people in the right place to make the right decision. Jury selection actually didn't begin until about 1.30 this afternoon, so it's off to a slow start, Jake. All right, Martin Savage, thank you so much. Appreciate it. China reportedly tests a missile that circles the globe and cannot yet be shot down. How is the U.S. responding? That's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the man behind the Steele dossier containing unverified and in some cases clearly false claims about former President Trump gives his first on-camera interview. Is he standing by his oppo file? And it's kind of like the movie Grumpy Old Men, but with trillions of dollars at stake. President Biden now being urged to get more involved with congressional talks as two political allies currently brawl over Biden's big spending plans. But first, leading this hour, the next Cold War heating up and a new development may have the United States playing catch-up as China reportedly tests a hypersonic missile that no nation as of now has the capability to shoot down. The move comes as China appears to be licking its chops over Taiwan, sitting right off the mainland. Perhaps the most dangerous flashpoint in the world right now. CNN's Oren Lieberman starts off our coverage this hour with a closer look at how dangerous this reported missile could be. The soaring tensions between the U.S. and China may have entered a new stratosphere. For years, the U.S. has been working on hypersonic technology, weapons that can travel more than five times the speed of sound. It's been a race between the U.S. and China, which may have just taken a major step forward. According to the Financial Times, China tested a hypersonic weapon this August, launched from a rocket in space. The weapon, which glided back to Earth at hypersonic speeds, was capable of carrying nuclear weapons, the Financial Times reported. The Pentagon would not comment on the report. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said officials are concerned with China's pursuit of advanced weaponry. We watch closely China's development of of, uh, armament and, and advanced capabilities. Uh, and systems that will only increase uh, tensions in the region. China often boasts about its space program. This past weekend, it sent three astronauts to its new space station, showing off its rapidly advancing civilian space program. But it never said a word about a launch in August, until now, calling it a routine test of a spacecraft, What is separated from the spacecraft before it returns is its supporting device, which will be burned up and dissolved as it falls through the atmospheric layer before dropping into the high seas. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said last month that China was developing new weapons with longer range and may have hinted at this as well. 
They have now gone from a few hundred miles to thousands, to literally around the globe. They have gone from a few high-value assets near China's shores to the second and third island chains, and most recently to intercontinental ranges, and even to the potential for global strikes, strikes from space even. It's not only the apparent technology the Chinese are developing, it's the intent behind it. U.S. missile defense systems are designed to face east, west, and north, officials say, detecting launches from Russia and others. Rather than flying over the North Pole, which would be the case with a warhead launched atop a ballistic missile, this uh, particular kind of orbital bombardment system could go over the South Pole and thus evade U.S. missile uh, defense systems. International treaties govern the use of space for peaceful purposes, but this raises a more daunting possibility, turning the final frontier into a potential future battleground. Even if there's no official confirmation from DOD or from state of this test, this is clearly something the U.S. has been tracking. That's because if you go back to last year's 2020 China Military Power Report, the U.S. wrote that, the, that China was looking to develop a range of nuclear forces and delivery options, including hypersonic glide vehicles. Jake? All right, CNN's Oren Laberman at the Pentagon for us with that report. Thank you. Here to discuss is David Sanger. He's the White House and National Security Analyst for the New York Times. David, thanks for joining us. So, the Chinese government claims that they actually launched a spacecraft, not a hypersonic missile. Um, how credible is that? It could well be that they, uh, in fact, did launch a uh, spacecraft and that it, in turn, could launch a hypersonic. You know, we've seen the North Koreans and the Iranians at various moments conduct tests that would be useful for military purposes but are under the cover of the space program. So it's entirely possible that what they're saying is literally true, but also adds to their understanding of hypersonics. And let's not forget, Jake, who else is doing hypersonics? The United States and Russia. Uh, so this is sort of the form of the new, uh, the new arms race. I'd be surprised if the Chinese weren't. The Financial Times report says, quote, the test showed that China had made astounding progress on hypersonic weapons and was far more advanced than U.S. officials realized, unquote. How could the U.S. government be so unaware of how far the Chinese government was when it comes to developing these weapons? Well, first, we haven't confirmed at the, the Times, uh, and I don't think that uh, anyone else has yet, that the, uh, the details of the Financial Times report are correct. But let's assume for a moment that uh, it is correct. Um, we have a long history of missing these developments. Remember what started our space program in a big way and, and helped our missile program was the surprise of Sputnik. But we've been surprised by nuclear tests by Pakistan and India uh, and moments Israel. Uh, we've been surprised by North Korean uh, ICBMs. Uh, the Chinese are pretty good at hiding this stuff. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, uh, if we missed it. In response to the Financial Times report, Republican Congressman Michael Gallagher, who sits on the House Armed Services Committee, he said the alleged test should, quote, serve as a call to action um, for the United States. What kind of action do you think the Biden administration might actually take when it comes to China over this, if any? Well, you know, one of the interesting moves at the end of the Trump administration was that uh, President Trump wanted to bring China into the negotiations on arms control, the New START negotiations with Russia. When New START was first negotiated a decade ago, 
China wasn't a piece of it. In fact, they've never been a part of our arms control negotiations. Um, that idea didn't go anywhere. New START got renewed uh, in the early days of the Biden administration. But certainly there are people within the Biden administration who tell me that they think that at some point it may be right to get China into these negotiations. And certainly the new missile fields that we've seen uh, being developed in China became clear on satellite photographs over the summer suggest that they may be moving away from their minimal deterrent approach and trying to build up, perhaps in anticipation of the fact that they might have to join these negotiations and they have a nuclear force that is less than a fifth of what the U.S. and the, and the Russians have. You're out with a, a new analysis in, in which it's titled, uh, Washington Hears Echoes of the 1950s and Worries. Is this a Cold War with China? You write that even if there isn't a formal Cold War, quote, governments that plunge into a Cold War mindset can exaggerate it. Every conflict convinced that they are part of a larger struggle, unquote. Um, how close do you think the U.S. is to this becoming a reality, a Cold War with China? I think pretty close. Uh, I, in the story, I quote uh, people like uh, Kevin Rudd, the former uh, prime minister of Australia and a China expert, saying it's more probable than not at this point. I think people get, are in Washington are getting into a big definitional argument that about whether this looks exactly like the Cold War with the Soviet Union of 35 or 40 years ago. And of course it doesn't. Why would it? Uh, the internet didn't exist at that time. We didn't have the kind of economic interdependencies between Russia and the United States that we clearly have between uh, China and the U.S. With U.S. and China, it's a technological race, it's an economic race, and a military race. With Russia, it was only military. Now, I would argue that while the economic interdependencies might help us stay away from Cold War behavior, Certainly in the recent weeks, we've seen a lot of pretty bad Cold War behavior. You, we've just been discussing one, but there was also the prisoner swap with the release of uh, the Huawei executive. We've seen the threats against Taiwan you referred to at the beginning. Um, there's a lot of Cold War reminiscent behavior underway between both powers. Donald Trump talked about and focused on China quite a bit. Do you think the Chinese government has changed its approach towards the United States since President Biden took office. Do you think that they were going to pursue this weapon no matter what, uh, if Trump was still in power or not? Oh, sure. Weapons like this take years to develop. The U.S. has been working on hypersonics for years. Uh, the Chinese have been working on hypersonics for years. I don't think that that was terribly related to, to President Trump. You know, the argument about President Biden during the campaign a year ago was uh, President Trump saying he'd be soft on China. Well, it was President Trump who, until COVID happened, was much softer uh, along the way uh, with the Chinese. What I think we've seen with the Biden administration, though, is they've been pretty tough. They have not relaxed any of the Trump era tariffs at this point, uh, and they have pushed back relatively hard. I think they're worried about the fact that they pushed back so hard and the Chinese have pushed back so hard that there hasn't been the interchange between the two countries that would steer us away from the Cold War. Um, but I think we're headed into some really rough patches. Now remember, the Chinese aren't 10 feet tall, Jake. I mean, they've got big economic problems of their own, as we've seen particularly 
in recent days. We shouldn't exaggerate their threat. Yeah. David Sanger, thank you so much for your expertise, as always. Coming up, can the president break up a fight between two key Democratic senators and get his massive spending plans moving? That's next. Also, former president and Hall of Fame caliber liar Donald Trump under oath. Why was he facing questions? That's ahead. Topping our politics lead, if there is one thing the Democrats can agree on, it's this. Failing to pass President Biden's infrastructure bill and social programs package would be devastating for the Democratic Party in 2022. But that might be the only thing they can all agree on. Negotiations over President Biden's infrastructure bill and social programs package still have not produced a compromise that both moderates and progressives can live with. This, as CNN's Manu Raji reports, key moderate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is now embroiled, embroiled in a public feud with the king of the progressives himself, Senator Bernie Sanders. With their party's agenda at risk of collapsing, Senator Joe Manchin has a message for Bernie Sanders. Don't blame him. He said he's hold, you're holding up the Biden agenda. No, no, there's 52 senators who don't agree. Okay, and there's two that want to work something out if possible in the most rational, reasonable way. That's all. Sanders, a self-proclaimed democratic socialist from Vermont, pushing one of the most ambitious proposals in U.S. history. A reduction in greenhouse gases by 50 percent, tuition-free community college, paid family and medical leave, an expansion of Medicare, which he considers a red line, and all to the tune of $3.5 trillion. But Manchin, who hails from West Virginia, a state Donald Trump won by nearly 40 points last year, opposes many of those ideas and wants to keep the price tag at $1.5 trillion. Manchin, in particular, has angered Sanders for saying this. I don't believe that we should turn our society into an entitlement society. I think that we should still be a compassionate, rewarding society. Does Senator Manchin not believe that our children and grandchildren are entitled to live in a country and a world that is healthy and is habitable? On a call with Democrats earlier this month, sources told CNN that President Biden quipped that putting Manchin and Sanders in the same room could lead to, quote, homicide. And last week, the feud taking a new turn when Sanders singled out both Manchin and Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema in a West Virginia newspaper, writing that the political problem we face is that in a 50-50 Senate, we need every Democratic senator to vote yes. We now have only 48. Two Democratic senators remain in opposition including Senator Joe Manchin. Firing back, Manchin said he will not vote for a reckless expansion of government programs. No op-ed from a self-declared independent socialist is going to change that. Everybody can do whatever they want to freedom of speech. I don't have a problem with any of that, you know, at all. But thinks he knows, or anyone thinks they know West Virginia and what, we're, what we've done and what we continue to do for this country. And that's all. I want to make sure they're respected properly. Across the airwaves in West Virginia, Manchin hearing it from both sides. Tell Joe Manchin, don't give in to this liberal madness. If you see Joe, tell him to keep up the fight, just like he's always done. But he feels no pressure in meeting his party's October 31st deadline. Do you think it's possible to get this done by October 31st? I really don't know on timing. You know, there's no time, there's no rush on timing. Let's just do it and do it right. 
So Sanders and Manchin have also been sparring over the strategy to pass that $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan. Manchin wants the House to pass that immediately. Sanders has supported a delay in that vote in order to get Manchin and Sinema to sign on to that larger social safety net package, all of which, Jake, has caused unease among top Democrats. The number two Democrat in the Senate, Dick Durbin, told me earlier there is, quote, high anxiety among Democrats, and he wants Manchin and Sinema to close the deal. High anxiety. Manu Raju, thank you so much. Well, let's discuss. Uh, Sabrina Siddiqui, let me start with you. So you have Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin locking horns. Uh, this started after Sanders went after Manchin in an op-ed in a, in a newspaper in Manchin's home state, West Virginia. Um, and Manchin really doesn't like it when people from outside West Virginia come into West Virginia. So we've seen. Yeah, I mean, remember his reaction when Vice President Harris did a, did a TV interview. Um, do you think this is the end of it? I mean, is this, will this completely stop the bill? No, look, I think that the public sparring is certainly notable and reinforces the, some of the divisions that still exist among Democrats over what provisions should be in this bill. Uh, but ultimately, what really uh, what this comes down to is whether or not Democrats can come to some sort of agreement and can they do it by the self-imposed deadline of October 31st? The latest self-imposed the, deadline. The, the latest self-imposed <laughs> like deadline. The or they missed or a couple of the other ones. Yeah. Uh, you know, the White House today signaling that President Biden is open to some of the proposals that Senator Manchin has put forward, like means testing or a cap on income for a child tax credit, oh. possibly also for universal pre-K. Uh, you know, there's also questions of whether they will cut some of these programs entirely, like clean energy or, you know, something that allowed Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. Progressives are a little bit more open to not cutting programs entirely, but just uh, scaling back how long they would be funded for. So that's really what the challenge is now for Biden is can he bring the Democratic Party along with Sanders, Manchin and Cinema, who, of course, hold the keys in the Senate? Yeah. And, and Jackie, I mean, Democrats have been pleading with President Biden to get more involved. A lot of one House Democrat telling reporters, uh, you know, he needs to get more involved. Now, Biden is holding meetings with key yeah. players. He is traveling to swing districts uh, for speech, you know, giving speeches, talking about what's actually in the plan. Um, but that's not enough for a lot of Democrats. Well, no, but th- th- I mean, the briefing today, there was a whole section at the top of it about all uh, Jen Psaki listing all the various meetings that Biden is having and uh, the, the phone calls that he will have um, when he goes abroad. But for some Democrats, it's never going to be enough. But they keep on zeroing in. The other thing that was interesting during this briefing, there definitely is some impatience, whether or not they have leverage or not. That is something else entirely. But um, the the patience with the cinema mansion faction and the hemming and hawing seems to be wearing thin, not only among Democratic ranks, but I think uh, starting in the West Wing and ending in the West Wing as well. But Jamal, do you think that the pressure on cinema and mansion is working. It seems, uh, from where I sit, it looks like it. It looks like it. It, ba- it backfires in many ways. I mean, no, re- no disrespect meant to, to Bernie Sanders, but an op-ed in a West Virginia newspaper for Bernie Sanders. I don't know how many Joe Manchin voters that that. I feel like that's an in-kind ad. <laughs> yeah, there, were, right. there were three voters for Bernie Sanders in all. Well, he, he actually he actually <laughs> didn't do that bad in the 2016 primaries, <laughs> yeah. but in West Virginia. But, I mean, I, does that really change the, the, the field, though? I guess. Well, just always remember, everybody's got their own politics. So, you know, Bernie Sanders isn't just doing this to affect West Virginia. He's also doing this to show that he's fighting mm-hmm. for this package so that his voters know that it's going to occur. Uh, the neighborhood where I grew up, people used to say, don't start none, won't be none, right? But once you start firing shots at Joe Manchin, he fires back. And I thought his return fire on on uh, Bernie Sanders was pretty effective, that he's an independent or democratic socialist, and nobody in West Virginia has listened to that person. The question here is, for people like Joe Manchin, who think of themselves as majority makers for the Democrats, they have to be careful. He has to be careful. He's not a majority taker. 
right? Because if they don't get a deal done here, people like uh, Raphael Warnock, who's up next year, he's not up in four years like Joe Manchin, he's up next year. He needs these deals to be done. And Joe Manchin in cinema might be the one standing in the way of it. Well, forget that. What about Terry McAuliffe running for governor in Virginia? He exactly. is very frustrated with this. You can imagine what he's saying in private. Because in public, he's going out and saying, quit your chitty chat there on Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah. You know, I need you to do something to save me. Um, and he is in a very, very tight race, made tighter by the fact that we've seen in previous races in recent American history that pollsters aren't great at tapping into the Trump vote. So it could be that that uh, Youngkin is actually even ahead. So, yeah, there, there needs to be some action. But, you know, I just I just cannot understand the Democrats thinking or, or some radical, you know, progressives thinking that a good strategy is to follow Kirsten Cinema into the restroom or to yeah. put op eds in West Virginia newspapers to put pressure on Manchin. I mean, they Manchin in particular, you know, won his uh, race in a state that went like for, by 5,000 points for Donald Trump. There's not going to be <laughs> another mansion. Okay. There, he, they need him desperately. They should be sending him bouquets, not putting op-eds in papers in his state to try to criticize But him. they're going to need Raphael Warnock and the people who are up next year sooner than they need Joe Manchin, right? Like if, if Warnock loses, the majority's over. Well, well, I think some of the frustration that you often see from progressives is that this debate is framed as if they're putting forth some radical solutions when, you know, if you were to put this bill on the floor, the majority of Democrats in both the House and the Senate would actually vote for $3.5 trillion. Uh, And so you actually heard President Biden himself a couple weeks ago, although I think he's moderated his tone a little bit, say this is actually two senators versus the rest of the party. So he actually did try and up the ante as well on uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. And progressives often also like to make the case, and was, was it effective to do it in an op-ed in West Virginia? That's, a de- that's debatable. Right. But that these provisions are popular. They poll well. And so, you know, I think they feel that Cinema and Manchin are catering to people who wouldn't necessarily vote for them but anyway. You say but we have it popular, even... but people don't know what's in the bill. Right. When you when pull it hasn't out been written say, yet. do you like the... Exactly. It's, so that's one problem. And, and it hasn't been written. People aren't really is... paying attention. We, I mean, we well, have CNN... haven't been selling it at all. I, I don't disagree with that. But CNN, we've, I mean, I'm sure uh, you two have been doing this. I know I have, and I'm sure you guys have too. Um, but we've been describing what's in the bill. Mm-hmm. People aren't that engaged. Yep. They're not really paying attention, I don't think. And the, we haven't even gotten into where there's going to be even further divisions, uh, most likely in the Democratic Party, because once you have to start removing some of these programs uh, that are popular among progressives, among the American people, what do you remove? Is it child care? Is it Medicare? Bernie Sanders says, heck no, you know we're what? not, not going to do if, that. So. If the whole thing went down and the administration had just focused on getting the virus under control and passing a big infrastructure bill... They would be in good shape. Well, they were, except the progressives said we're not going to pass the infrastructure bill (laughs) unless we get all this other stuff. I know, and that put the whole party in danger. So, Jamal, I do want to ask you a question about, uh, just as a Democratic strategist, about what's going on in in Virginia right now, Mm -hmm. which is this weekend Stacey Abrams and Kamala Harris, the vice president, went out there to help uh, McAuliffe campaign engaging black church congregations in a push to get 
voters to the poll. Uh, polls, do you, I mean, this seems like a very tight race and a very losable one for Democrats. Oh, uh, every operative I know that's working on the, any race in that state is saying it's very tight. Uh, remember, Sunday was the first souls to the polls Sunday in Virginia ever. So that's why you saw all that activity um, happening over the weekend. Oh, they'd never done it before. In no, the they hadn't done it before. Okay. And so now you've got also 370,000 people have voted, uh, voters have voted since early vote started on September 17th. Mm. That was as of October 14th. Mm. That was a week or so old. Uh, that is already ahead of where they were in 2017. What people are saying is if Terry McAuliffe is going to win, it's going to win because of these early vote efforts, and Democrats are focused intently on it. We only have a little bit, like 30 seconds, but I know you wanted to say something about um, the death of uh, General Colin Powell. I did. Um, I just want to make sure that people, his, his life obviously is a big, is a, a, a big moment, and that's marking it is very important. I want to also make sure we think about how does Colin Powell got there, how we got a Colin Powell, right? Um, he became chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, because there were two interventions that mattered. One is the Carter administration made sure that they found African-American generals who could get promoted back in the 1970s, and that's how he got his first star. The second is when he had a mistake, when he was a, or he had a sort of falling down when he was a one-star general, there were two generals who came to his uh, aid. One was Latino, the first Latino four-star in the U.S. Army. The second one was General Becton, African-American, Carvassos and Becton. They intervened and made sure Colin Powell had another chance to prove what he could do which is how he got his second star in the military. He writes about it a little bit in his book. It's also written about other places. I say all that to say this. It's been 28 years since Colin Powell was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Today, according to the New York Times, there are only two African Americans among the 41 most senior military officials in the, on all four branches of the military. If we are going to have another Colin Powell, we have to have a more diversified leadership, and that means people need not only the opportunity to succeed, but the opportunity to fall down and get back up. Representation matters, and it's, it's not over. It's done. not done. Colin Powell didn't end the need for it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks to everybody. Coming up next, defending the dossier. The man behind the document at the center of so much political drama speaks out for the first time. Stay with us. Breaking news, the U.S. State Department watchdog is launching a series of new reviews into the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan. CNN's Kylie Atwood is live for us at the State Department. Kylie, what exactly is the inspector general going to look into? Yeah, so the acting uh, State Department inspector general has alerted congressional committees that the State Department inspector general is going to be essentially looking into a number of reviews. They're calling these oversight projects into the Biden administration's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. They're going to focus on four uh, specific things. The Afghan special immigrant visa program, the processing of Afghans to become refugees here in the United States, the resettlement of both those SIVs and of those Afghan refugees here in the United States, and also the planning and the execution of the chaotic uh, withdrawal from the embassy in Kabul, and also uh, the withdrawal of all of those Americans and all of those Afghans that came out in that evacuation. Now, the acting inspector general said that she is letting Congress know about these projects uh, for two reasons. First of all, because there's been extraordinary interest on this topic uh, from these congressional oversight committees. And secondarily, because there's going to have to be a lot of coordination with other inspector generals, indicating that she'll be talking to the inspector generals from the Department of Defense and potentially from the intelligence community. This is just the beginning of what we're seeing with regard to uh, doubling down on looking closely at what happened with that withdrawal, uh, what could have gone better, uh, what didn't go so well. 
well. Uh, and we expect that we'll learn more about this. But it is uh, really extraordinary that they are letting Congress know about their active work because traditionally the inspector general says when we are doing ongoing probes, we're not going to let folks know what we're looking into. Here, they're charting a different path. Jake? All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. Turning now to our politics lead, it is filled with salacious claims about Donald Trump, and it was part of a dramatic period of time that ended with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation before and testimony before Congress. I'm talking, of course, about the infamous Steele dossier. And now the former British spy behind that document, which was shared with the FBI, a document that claimed Russian officials held compromising information on Donald Trump, now that former spy speaking out and defending his work in a new interview with ABC News. Most of the world first heard your name about five years ago, but you stayed silent up until now. Why speak out now? I think there are several reasons. I think the first and most important is that the problems we identified back in 2016 haven't gone away and arguably have actually got worse. And I thought it was important to come and set the record straight. CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider joins me now live. And Jessica, did Mr. Steele provide any evidence to back up the details in his dossier? He didn't at all, Jake. You know, despite billing this, this first TV interview that he's done as a chance to set the record straight, Christopher Steele actually didn't provide any proof as to a lot of those claims that he made in that salacious dossier. But he did address head-on two of the most contentious and as-yet unproven claims. The first one that he stands by is that Michael Cohen, the president's former fixer, former attorney who ended up going to prison, um, that he traveled to Prague during the election to meet with Russian officials. It's something that Michael Cohen has repeatedly denied. And then, of course, Christopher Steele addressed the infamous P-tape that he says shows Donald Trump in 2013 uh, in that hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow with prostitutes. Now, this tape, of course, has never materialized. The former president denies it exists, but Steele stands by the fact that he believes it might exist, even though the Department of Justice Inspector General said in their report in 2019 that one of the sources for saying that there was this tape actually came out to really be um, not, not truthful, perhaps. And this is what Steele said as to that. Take a listen. One of your main collectors spoke to the inspector general, said that especially the compromise was word of mouth and hearsay, conversations with friends over beers. It was just talk. If you have a confidential source and that confidential source is blown or is uncovered, that confidential source will often take fright and try and downplay and underestimate what they've said and done. And I think that's probably what happened here. He's afraid? I think anybody that's named in this context, particularly if they're Russian, has every reason to be afraid. So you stand by the dossier? I stand by the work we did, the sources that we had, and the professionalism which we applied to it. So, Jake, you hear there, Christopher Steele refusing to back down from the allegations that were put forth in that salacious dossier. What was interesting, at the end of the interview, he was asked by George Stephanopoulos if Donald Trump could potentially pose a national security threat if he were to run in 2024. Christopher Steele answered yes, potentially, of course. That's because he says uh, it pertains to what he wrote in the dossier and then, of course, the threats that Russia still poses when it comes to election interference. On that Michael Cohen Prague thing, we reported in 2017, CNN reported that a government official told us that they thought it was a different Michael Cohen exactly. that went to, to Prague. And, still... and everyone says, if Michael Cohen's been so spoken out, why wouldn't he just own up to this right. if that happened? 
bizarre. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Just as we started thinking the Delta variant was in our rearview mirror, a warning now about a new variant sending COVID cases soaring across the pond. Details next. In our health lead, police officers and their unions are holding the line against vaccine mandates from coast to coast. We just learned that more than a third of Chicago's police force defied the city's mandate by not reporting their status by Friday's deadline. Massachusetts is 600 state police officers short because of its mandate. And the Seattle Police Union president tells the Associated Press that there could be a, quote, mass exodus ahead of that city's mandate midnight tonight. Joining us now, Dr. Paul Offit, the director of the Vaccine Education Center, Children's Hospital, Philadelphia. Dr. Offit, this is obviously a very serious issue for the safety of cities if officers get laid off or suspended. Um, But it's also a serious health issue for the officers themselves. Take a listen to your friend, Dr. Fauci. More police officers die of COVID than they do in other causes of death. So uh, it doesn't make any sense to not trying to protect yourself as well as the colleagues that you work with. I know that you support uh, vaccine mandates and I presume that you support them for police officers. How do you balance this if you're a mayor and a third of the force is not going to show up? I mean, that's a public health issue, too. No, no, it's if you had to pick the profession that's actually most at risk of suffering from this this virus or being hospitalized by this virus, it's interesting, not healthcare workers, it's police officers, because healthcare workers are always very conscious of wearing masks, trying to distance to the degree that they can. Here you have a group that's constantly interacting with, with the public, a public that often is in, in areas that are relatively under-vaccinated. They need to protect themselves. But what do you do? What do you do when you can't get someone to, to get a vaccine that will protect them as well as everyone they come in contact with. This is an at-risk group who's refusing to do the one thing they can do to save their own lives. Former FDA Administrator Dr. Scott Gottlieb tweeted about a new, quote, Delta Plus variant. He says, quote, UK reported its biggest one-day COVID case increase in three months, just as the new Delta variant. This is not a cause for immediate concern, but a reminder that we need robust systems to identify and characterize new variants. Why is it hard to study these new variants? Um, well, because, you know, you want to make sure that, that they're occurring in areas where you can very quickly identify the sequence and see what sequences have changed to allow them to be more transmissible. I mean, we have had basically three variants. The first a virus that, that, that raised its head in Wuhan was not really the variant. The first virus that left China was the first variant, the so-called D614G variant, swept across Asia, swept across Europe, swept across the United States, killed hundreds of thousands of people here, replaced by the Alpha variant, which was more contagious, then replaced by the Delta variant, which is particularly contagious. I mean, the Delta variant's contagiousness index approaches chickenpox, which is a highly transmissible uh, virus. So uh, frankly, I can't imagine a virus that's much more transmissible than the Delta variant. Hopefully we won't have to find out. You're on the uh, FDA Vaccines Advisory Committee. I just want to ask you about this mixing and matching booster doses issue. Uh, Somebody gets two Pfizer's and then for their booster gets a Moderna or, or whatever. Um, If you had to vote on mixing and matching booster doses today, uh, would you vote yes? 
Well, again, it all depends on the data. You want to have robust data so that people can be comfortable that if you're, say, get a Johnson & Johnson vaccine and then boost with an mRNA-containing vaccine, that you have clearly evidence of a higher neutralizing antibody titer, et cetera. And so those, those studies are currently being done. I, I hope that we can get them in hand soon because I think the public really needs direction on exactly how to proceed here. The FDA should rule on the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson booster shots any day now. You were warning of this, quote, third dose fever last week with all the data showing waning immunity. Why shouldn't everyone of every age group rush to get their booster dose? Well, so the question is, what's the goal of the vaccine? If the goal of the vaccine is to prevent serious illness, meaning the kind of illness that causes you to seek medical attention or go to the hospital or to the ICU or worse, these vaccines are holding up very well, all of them. Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson are holding up very well in protection against serious illness. What happens over time, though, as your neutralizing antibodies decrease, which is true of, of any vaccine, then you start to see more asymptomatic infection, mildly symptomatic infection. The question is, how important is it to protect against that? Because if we're going to try and protect against that, the third dose may not be the last dose, because even after the third dose, you're going to have some uh, waning of protection. So I, I can see where this is really confusing for people. For most vaccines, most vaccines don't don't do a very good job at preventing asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection. We're holding this vaccine to a higher standard because when you get a flu vaccine, for example, and you get an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, you don't get a PCR test and then are quarantined for 10 days. I think that's one of the big differences. I want to switch uh, gears to the death of uh, retired General Colin Powell. Um, you have a lot of thoughts about how COVID impacted his cancer battle and vice versa, how his fight with cancer impacted his fight with COVID. And how anti-vaxxers uh, are, once again, ignorantly, ghoulishly using his death to push their inaccurate agenda about the efficacy of the vaccine. Yeah, when people ask me the question, you know, what's the worst thing anti-vaccine activists can say? I think the worst thing they say is when they say, what do you care what I do? You're vaccinated. Well, look at Colin Powell. I mean, Colin Powell is a man in his mid-80s. He has multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of your immune system. He likely was being treated with agents which also decreased his immune response. So despite two doses, he was someone who wasn't going to develop a very good immune response. So he needed those people around him to protect him. I mean, you know, when people say, what do you care what I do? You're vaccinated. It, it makes two incorrect assumptions. One, that vaccines are 100% effective, which is true of no vaccine. And two, that, that everyone can be vaccinated, which is not true of people like Colin Powell. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real shame. Dr. Paul Oppa, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up, Donald Trump and the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth under oath today for the first time as the ex-president. We'll find out why next. Breaking news in our politics lead, former President Donald Trump just filed a lawsuit to keep secret records related to the deadly January 6th insurrection. The House Special Committee investigating the Capitol attack asked for the documents. Trump requested that the Biden White House assert executive privilege to keep those items from investigators, but Biden denied Trump's blanket request, leading to the lawsuit that was just filed. This is just the newest legal issue facing Donald Trump. Today, Trump was under oath, facing questions in a completely different lawsuit stemming from an incident back in 2015 when he was a candidate. The suit claims that Trump's former head of security, Keith Schiller, hit a protester in the head and also destroyed the signs of others demonstrating against then-candidate Trump. CNN's Kara Scannell is outside Trump Tower where this 2015 incident occurred. And Kara, lawyers questioned Trump for four and a half hours today. What are they saying about his testimony? 
That's right, Jake. Four and a half hours and several years in the making. The lawyer for the plaintiffs, Benjamin Dichter, told reporters that the deposition began around 10 a.m. and ended about 2.30 p.m. He said just like anyone else, Trump raised his right hand and swore to tell the truth. Here's how Dichter described his deposition and his questions and Trump's answers. We examined Mr. Trump concerning a variety of issues, including statements he has made at various campaign events and rallies uh, that counsel believes encouraged violence at those events or encouraged security guards to engage in violence or the confiscation of property. Uh, we secured answers to those questions and we intend to present uh, Mr. Trump's sworn testimony to a jury in this matter as uh, soon as possible. Now, the lawyer did not say he would not characterize uh, Trump's answers, whether specifically, and he would not characterize whether he believed the pr former president's answers were truthful, saying that only everyone has seen Donald Trump on TV and he answered the questions the way you would expect him to. And his conduct was that in the same way that he's conducted himself publicly. It's hard to read into what he means by that. But Dichter also said that he believed that this was a victory for the rule of law because Donald Trump did have to answer these questions after years of fighting it. And he said that in this case, it really proves that no one is above the law. Jake? Kara, do you think this tape of the deposition is ever going to be made public? Well, Jake, that's what's so interesting here. This was a videotaped deposition, but it will be used at the trial. So when this goes to trial, it will be submitted as evidence. It's what the jurors will hear. Those will be jurors in Bronx, New York, just north of Manhattan. Uh, they will hear it then, and then it will become part of the public record. So we do expect to ultimately see either this videotape or a transcript of it. Jake? All right, Kara Scannell in New York, right outside Trump Tower. Thanks so much. Coming up, a story of cocaine, out-of-control hippos, and birth control. Hmm. I dare you not to stick around for that tease. If you're one of the most feared drug lords, responsible for hundreds of deaths, and launching a global cocaine empire, why wouldn't you want one of the world's most dangerous animals as pets? Well, that's exactly what Pablo Escobar might have been thinking. In the 80s, the late Colombian drug kingpin smuggled four hippos from Africa into the country to be part of his private zoo. When Escobar was gunned down and his properties were seized, the hippos were left to fend for themselves around the Magdalena River. Instead of dying off, however, they've been living their best lives. The hippo population has soared to more than 100. And now Colombian officials will start to chemically sterilize the animals. Researchers say because the hippo has an unlimited food source and no large natural predators in Colombia, those animals are now permanently damaging the environment, not to mention the threat to humans. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead Scene. And if you ever miss an episode of The Lead and you're on the subway, driving home, you can always listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He is right next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.